1: I wanted to come at the permafrost and challenge this narrative that it is a kind of apocalyptic uh, object for want of a better word or substance, but also to challenge the idea of permafrost as just a kind of scientific thing that science has a strategy for understanding permafrost. And it is kind of the only thing that that is worth knowing about. Permafrost is permanently frozen ground for two or more years at a temperature of 0 degrees or below that is the official scientific definition but i kind of found that to be lacking so yeah i just i just wanted to approach permafrost to resist this idea of it as an a, as an apocalypse or as a, a scientific object that is able to be uh, fully understood
0: Today, we're speaking with Charlotte Wrigley, a postdoctoral fellow at the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Centre at the University of Stavanger. Her research sits at the intersection between human geography, environmental humanities and Arctic studies, and is concerned with thinking through the relations between humans, animals and the material landscape in the Anthropocene.
1: Well, I wanted to talk about permafrost in this way because... Firstly, I, I kind of identified almost a complete lack of engagement with it, with the social sciences and humanities. And I, I wanted to kind of question why that was, because the Arctic is such uh, an important topic to, to many humanities scholars and, and beyond, of course. But permafrost has kind of essentially been a blind spot, save for, I really want to mention, Yi Chu's book, The Life of Permafrost, and Susan crates we all live on permafrost i think i'm getting that book title right i'm so sorry if i've got it wrong but these are two kind of two scholars that i really look up to and have been kind of pioneers in permafrost social science and humanities but i think in the media reporting as well i just kind of think that it is something that has been missed or when it does get reported on Uh, it tends to follow this kind of apocalyptic doom mongering narrative of it's a ticking time bomb. It's running out of control. The thawing is, the thawing is out of control. And I just kind of find that quite a difficult narrative or an unhelpful narrative, I guess is a better word. So I kind of wanted to challenge these quite spectacular narratives of the permafrost. So I wanted to approach it from a kind of geographic perspective to to kind of examine what permafrost is as a substance. And this is not just materially, but also uh, spatially, socially, politically, um, as a dynamic container of things that is in relation to the various actors in it and on it. And I also became fascinated by... Um, this idea of de-extinction. This is another thing that brought me to this topic. Just learning about what de-extinction is, and and my mind was blown, and I was also quite horrified by it, and of course. The, the the main one of the main candidates for de-extinction is the woolly mammoth and that had come to people's attention because the permafrost was thawing and so many mammoth bodies were were being discovered there mm. so i found a compelling relation between i guess the heating and the thawing of the permafrost world and this this need to kind of cool things down both through i guess the refreezing of the permafrost and also more kind of anthropogenic technologies of freezing, which is where um, mammoth de-extinction comes in. And so I kind of followed this tension um, through some case studies, the main one being um, Pleistocene Park, which is a rewilding experiment in uh, the Russian Arctic in the Sakha Republic, which um, aims to restore the mammoth steppe ecosystem and bring in a bunch of large herbivores to cold adapt and trample the permafrost to keep it frozen. And this is kind of uh, touted as a, a fix to uh, permafrost thaw. And this is kind of the similar a similar situation with mammoth extinction to address extinction issues, a sixth grade extinction. So, I guess, uh, in a roundabout way to answer your question, I wanted to come at the permafrost and challenge this narrative that it is a kind of apocalyptic uh, object, for want of a better word, or substance. But also to challenge the idea of permafrost as just a kind of scientific thing that science has a strategy for understanding permafrost and it is kind of the only thing that that is worth knowing about permafrost is permanently frozen ground for two or more years at a temperature of zero degrees or below that is the official scientific definition but I kind of found that to be lacking. So yeah, I just I just wanted to approach permafrost to resist this idea of it as an, a as an apocalypse or as a, a scientific object that is able to be uh, fully understood.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of threads that you brought into this response, and I'm looking forward to exploring a lot of these further throughout this conversation. And yeah, we'll definitely be talking more about these de-extinction endeavors and the Pleistocene Park. But as a backdrop for our listeners who aren't familiar, the Pleistocene Park is a reserve in northeastern Siberia, where they're attempting to recreate the northern subarctic steppe grassland ecosystem that flourished in the era during the last glacial period. And Charlotte, you were the first scholar from the social sciences and humanities that ever visited the Northeast Science Station and the Pleistocene Park in Chersky. So in regards to this, what do you think is important to share in terms of the inequities in research funding reflected in the trajectory of permafrost science and therefore the dominant narratives around permafrost and why does this call for kind of like an interrogation of how science produces truths and norms in particular ways that might not be as objective as people might think it is
1: yeah that's that's a great question and firstly Yeah, I mean, it was almost prohibitively expensive to get there, and I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to find the funding as a PhD student. Most scholars uh, would not get this opportunity to go, and that that is the reason why I was the first one, because usually you need big scientific grants, natural science grants, essentially, because these sorts of grants are rarely available in the humanities and it was also interesting to see when i got there pretty much all of the scientists were american there were a couple of russians there but it it also kind of displayed the discrepancy in funding available across nations it's not just for the sciences it is very much dependent on basically you being a western scientist but it's also kind of important to highlight how the science of permafrost which began in the soviet union essentially well it be- it began before that but it didn't really have a name but essentially it was a tool of colonialism and this was this was kind of occurring as russians in the russian empire were moving eastwards into siberia and encountering permafrost for the first time and it became essentially a way to cement their presence on the land and to take the land from the indigenous people who are already living there there are many indigenous groups living in in siberia many are still there but um of course they have been subject to colonialism but it essentially kind of boiled down to who could understand permafrost who could control permafrost uh in order to um cement as i said their presence on on the landscape and this was how the kind of discipline of permafrost science emerged and and only became more relevant in the Soviet Union when there was so much money available for science. Uh, it's certainly not like that now in Russia, but in the Soviet Union, funding was essentially limitless, and especially if it was science that you could use to further the ideals of the Soviet Union. And permafrost was something that essentially Soviet scientists wanted to... Um, I've forgotten the quote, but I read it quite recently, something that they wanted to subjugate, something that they wanted to completely, you know, get within their power, which which kind of reflects the sort of thinking that was going on there. There was there was there wasn't really any um, ideas about living with permafrost. It was how can we mold permafrost to do the things that we want it to do? Which have been fascinating and, of course, especially now, isn't working at all. And there was a sense in which you could maybe have controlled permafrost when it was doing what it should. <laughs> doing inverted commas there, which you can't see, of course. But permafrost certainly doesn't do what it should ever. But certainly now you're, you're seeing... You're seeing so much, so many examples of uh, infrastructure that is that was built in the Soviet Union, or even more recently, collapsing, buckling. It's basically becoming much harder to, um, as I said, subjugate permafrost in this very colonial way. So, yeah, these these are the um, the, the ideas that I think it's really important to firstly show that they are not necessarily correct certainly not correct in in the in the sense that you can control permafrost in this way but also to resist this not just colonial narrative towards um and the indigenous peoples who are living in the Saka Republic and beyond but also it's a colonial narrative to think you can subjugate and control the land so that's where i was uh, coming from with with that thank you
0: and that's really important for us to keep in mind just not taking research findings as they are, but being curious and critical to look behind the curtains, not to entirely undermine these findings, but to at least situate it within a deeper understanding of what lenses, what incentives, the politics behind them, and what inequities in funding produce these specific forms and direction of knowledges to yeah help people to see that there are there are more narratives beyond these specific things and whatever these research findings are like that might not properly illustrate the full picture and is definitely worthy of critique, as any other form of knowledge would be as well. And discontinuity is an underlying thread of your work, both in terms of how you've thought about permafrost, as well as how you've approached the research and storytelling aspects. So I would love it if you can share more about how this has influenced your how as you situate yourself in the Arctic humanities, and what it means that thinking discontinuously about matter pushes back on attempts to control or categorize permafrost?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I I did want to call the book Discontinuous Earth, but the um, publisher didn't like that title. So Mm. it ended up as just kind of a thread uh, running through the book. But I think if if people were to read the book, that's that's really what I want them to take from it, this, this idea of discontinuity. And it kind of it comes from the permafrost itself um, because permafrost is scientifically categorized as being continuous discontinuous or sporadic and the continuous permafrost is the thickest oldest coldest permafrost found in the uh, most northerly uh, latitudes of the world and discontinuous is patchier is more dynamic is more unpredictable but it is not fixed in place and uh, scientific research has has discovered that permafrost, continuous permafrost, is becoming discontinuous permafrost due to the climate crisis. So I wanted to kind of run with this idea to think about, yeah, as you say, permafrost materiality, but how we can also use this idea that permafrost is not a fixed thing, it's not something that is possible to hold in place, it's not something that is possible to predict, I also wanted to imply to apply it to the idea of extinction and in a way that we can potentially reconceptualize what we mean by extinction because the normative definition of extinction uh, refers of course to the death of a species or we might talk about the sixth great extinction event which many scientists believe we're in or we might even talk about the extinction of the human race the end of the human race which, as I mentioned before, is, is, is a narrative that has emerged kind of in tandem with this kind of apocalyptic doom mongering um, in response to the climate crisis. But I wanted to think with discontinuity as a way to think, rethink extinction as a kind of messier, more generative occurrence. That doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily have a beginning or an end, which is the way we sort of think about extinction as an end of things but is instead more to do with the process of unmaking and remaking. I guess, yeah,
0: just to clarify this, I guess dominant narratives around extinction, as you should kind of follow this linear path of life, death, extinction into nothingness. Mm-hmm. So when we think through this lens of discontinuity, it's it really questions this very linear pathway to showcase the constant transformations and kind of interactions and interconnectedness of the world? Is that what you're sort of addressing?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And I use uh, different ways, uh, Mm -hmm. different modes of permafrost, I guess, to illustrate these ideas. I uh, talk about the extinction of permafrost in one of the chapters. Can we think about an extinction in, in, in the context of something that is considered to be non-living? But I draw on um, indigenous ideas from the Sakha Republic, which is where I, I based my research, and thinking about how they might consider the permafrost to be not necessarily alive per se, but having... Um, Needing to uh, show respect to the permafrost or the tundra, there is a book that I draw on called "The Breath of Permafrost," which um, kind of illustrates the the need for showing permafrost respect in order to to keep the sort of balance with the land, which I think is really um, is really fruitful for for thinking about extinctions of things that are not necessarily have have life in the normative sense of the word. I also think about the kind of relation between the living animals at the Pleistocene Park, which have been brought from all over the world and kind of placed in this little area of northern Siberia, probably very confused. But also they, they are kind of trampling on the bones of thousands and thousands of, of other creatures. And it's these bones which have—that's uh, what's brought the Pleistocene Park into being. Essentially, it is the finding of this dead ecosystem. Essentially, that inspired the the men behind the park to to recreate this this ecosystem. So, kind of thinking about how the ancestry of these creatures are are still inflecting the land. They are forming relations. With the permafrost and the animals that are that are kind of uh, inhabiting that 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 land now, and and how extinction is is much much more of a fuzzier fuzzier process than we might think, and then I finally think about extinction through, of course, the lens of de-extinction, which is yeah, I mean I mentioned previously a very uh, speculative new techno science which aims to resurrect extinct creatures. And of course, you're, you're getting into, um, you, you know, if extinction becomes something that we can control, what does that say about the sorts of power relations that humans have with other species, with the planet as a whole? And so I use these examples to, to demonstrate that, yeah, this extinction is not a linear occurrence once uh, a creature is dead. There is even a potential to to resurrect it as, as, as much as I have huge problems with that concept and that it certainly wouldn't be the species as people knew it. But it's just kind of demonstrating how that the picture is never as obvious or, or clear as um, it can often be made out to be.
0: You're listening to Green Dreamer, an alternative podcast made possible by listeners like you. To support our community-powered show and listen to our disruption-free, extended and bonus episodes, join us today on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dreamer. Yeah, I I really appreciate these nuances that you're raising here. And I resonate with everything you've shared. I'm personally really drawn to all of the above ways of thinking that hold possibly seemingly conflicting truths together. And I think what comes to my mind right now is I can see how people might interpret this idea of seeing extinction as more as transformations rather than something with a beginning and an end, that this might sort of neutralize the impact and judgment of what is happening. So for example, what what if people are like, oh, if we just understand all of these things as constant transformations rather than, for example, a species that is coming to an end in their current form, what if that makes people care less about the quote-unquote endangerment of the current plight that a lot of species or their communities or their larger webs of life, like whatever people want to use in terms of measuring the wellness of a being. So what if it leads to that sort of interpretation? Does that make sense what I'm trying to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really great, great question. The thing that I would say to that is I think grief can often be paralyzing and i think a lot of people are faced with a situation that is so big that it's kind of beyond them and i'm talking about the sixth great extinction but of course the climate crisis as well there's a sort of uh, paralysis that a lot of people feel there is so much kind of going wrong that they don't really know how to respond there is a so, uh, And I can't remember the name of the book again, I apologize, but uh, an anthropologist did an ethnography of a, of a Norwegian town, which had basically its ski season had failed for two years in a row. And, you know, these are educated people and they know it's the climate crisis that is causing this, but they, they were just kind of, they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't react politically. They were just sort of kind of like rabbits caught in the headlights. And so what I would say in regards to finding transformation and extinction is what I hope it could do and discontinuity could do is break free of this kind of normative ontology, essentially this normative way of doing things, which has clearly not been working for a very long time and instead to kind of embody the to embody discontinuous ways of being in the world and that involves uh finding ways of making connections that don't correspond to um i'd say the kind of techno-capitalistic fetishism that we kind of find ourselves in and and this is what i worry about with de-extinction in that it's seen as uh, as a kind of easy techno fix to the end that extinction brings whereas you know I I think I feel like that's just kind of perpetuating the violences that is uh, that have got us into this situation in the first place so whilst we of course should mourn the loss of species I don't think it should we should let it paralyze us in the sense that it it stops us from making other relations with other creatures and, and and the natural world but instead it kind of opens us up to more if that makes sense Yeah,
0: totally. And also as a parallel, I'm thinking about how at the more micro level there is the death of an individual. And certain cultures might view death as the very end and how that worldview and perspective might influence particular actions or politics of organizing life. And then other cultures who might see death as part of a larger picture of decomposition, enabling new life or transformation into new life. And just recognizing that that perspective shift doesn't necessarily lead people to then devalue life altogether and see see life as not important because it's just constantly transforming but it might offer alternative ways of viewing and relating to this end and yeah possibly reorienting how people approach and live their lives as well and yeah a lot of these are kind of philosophical but I do think these are important considerations to hold during these troubled times. And you kind of touched on this, but something that I felt called to sit with and think through is the idea of species categorization. So various past conversations we've had on the podcast before have pushed back against rigid categorizations and the limitations and worldviews that they impose. And I remember our past interview with Danny Selemeyer on multi-species justice, where we also raised the question of, how a species is defined to be able to garner care and secure resources and formal protection when they are deemed endangered on that sort of more linear measurement. And then how about the beings who don't fit neatly into these categories, like maybe lichen or the fungal world or the well-being of larger superorganisms that understand the health of that overall community as more than the sum of their parts. So as we open up the ways we think about extinction more, I'm curious to hear your views on the limitations of mainstream environmentalism's categorization of species, endangered species and extinct species, as well as what might get left out of this picture.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I am hoping to explore in essentially a new project on permafrost and biodiversity. Because, uh, and you touched on it, thinking about other forms of life that are not necessarily, um, they're, they're a little bit more fuzzy to pin down. And I think this is absolutely true of, of permafrost as well. And it's kind of illustrative of, the, of what I've been saying about um, transformations and discontinuity. Because as permafrost thaws, there are things within it that have been frozen and potentially going to use a, a normative word here, but wake up. Uh, it's not necessarily waking up uh, in the way that we would uh, understand it, but these are things like giant viruses, bacteria. Carbon, of course, greenhouse gases, but I talk about an incident that happened in um, Arctic Russia uh, about five years ago now, in which um, there were reindeer that had uh, died in the 1930s, I think, from anthrax, and the people there, there were the Nenets people uh, of the Yamal Peninsula, uh, they buried the reindeer, but they couldn't bury the reindeer very far down because of permafrost. And then um, a very hot summer, part of the climate crisis, of course, um, meant that these reindeer thawed and the anthrax that had killed them had lain dormant and was able to reinfect the current reindeer herd and and the village itself. So this was obviously uh, something that was quite shocking. Most of the viruses and bacteria that you would find in permafrost would would, would not be harmful for, for humans, certainly. But it really does raise a really interesting point about how we value life and biodiversity, because we can talk about, and this is what the Pleistocene Park talk about—the complete lack of biodiversity on the tundra. But what happens if you increase biodiversity from permafrost thaw? But it's the, the the sort of wrong biodiversity. It's the wrong sort of life. You you don't want these things potentially infecting your reindeer. But of course, this is a kind of ethical conundrum because uh, who are we to dictate which forms of life are valuable and which are not? And I think this is where. The idea of a species categorization really falls down because certain species are obviously afforded much more um, funding, much more interest, much more care than others. And this is, I, I think, why you, you're, you're seeing such a big drive to de-extinct the mammoth, because it is so charismatic. It's something that everybody knows what a mammoth is. So if you were to bring it back, so-called, you would have something incredibly compelling to a lot of people. I mean, nobody is suggesting that we should de-extinct, you know, an ancient virus, <laughs> but these are these are, these are very important ethical questions that I think certainly really emerges with with the permafrost as well.
0: Yeah. And to bring back what you shared towards the beginning about the inequities of permafrost research, you talk about the need to decolonize how certain knowledges are privileged over others and the importance of recognizing that knowing tundra is an embodied practice. To these points, I wonder if you can give us some examples of the indigenous communities on the Russian tundras and Arctic, whose knowledges have emerged from being intimate with permafrost spaces, and then how their lives and foodways with permafrost have been transformed or limited by broader policies imposed on them, or that might have forcibly included them in national politics and those particular ways of relating to the land. How does this also invite us to honor the breath of the permafrost and the centuries of knowledge and tradition of the people in these communities?
1: Yeah, well, a a lot of uh, what I read in the breath of permafrost was actually the author, he is a Sakhan um, scholar. He was almost chiding his fellow Sakhans for... I think he put it, turning their back on their traditional ways of life. But of course, during the Soviet Union, well, there was a massive push to collectivization, which was essentially done to assimilate all indigenous people into the ways of uh, the Soviet Union, essentially. It wasn't necessarily a Russian thing, but it was an ideology that didn't allow for any any sort of difference. So um this was incredibly damaging to a lot of the indigenous groups ways of life and particular the ones that made their homes on the tundra and these were these were often nomadic um they were nomadic reindeer herders and the reason one of the the main reasons why they were nomadic uh, as well as needing to move because of the reindeer herds of course was because you stay in one place on the tundra and this is what Sakhan scholar told me uh you stay in one place on the tundra um you are warm your body is warm your camp is warm and so you're you're essentially you are not respecting the breath of the permafrost in in that sense you are potentially thawing it um so so in that sense that you have to you have to move on but there are other Cosmological understandings that 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 kind of still that are still uh, around, but are not, um, I would say, kind of practiced to the level that they would have been um, without the Soviet collectivization. There are a lot of uh, myths around the mammoth, for example for for example because of course mammoth bodies are found with quite a, you know, regularity on the tundra, um, much more uh, regularly now with it thawing, but it still wasn't a uncommon occurrence to find a mammoth body. And so some of the indigenous groups have ideas around the mammoth that don't uh, recognize it as being extinct. Instead, the mammoth is a god that uh, lives in the ground and burrows through the permafrost with, uh, with its tusks. And to find a, a mammoth, a dead mammoth uh, at the surface, it's very bad luck to touch it, to do anything with it. Uh, and so you must consecrate the gravesite with with an offering. And this still happens. Um there, it, it's kind of debatable how much uh, the, the kind of belief still endures uh, because of this collectivization. But uh, I, I met a woman who whose husband had gone hunting for mammoths, actually, for mammoth bodies to um, take the tusks to sell to China because this can be quite a lucrative practice. And she was uh, very worried for him because uh, he hadn't he had not taken any um, grave offerings. So she was concerned that if he found a mammoth body and didn't consecrate the grave, then then terrible luck would would befall him. So so these ideas endure, but they they don't really ever overcome this dominant uh, scientific narrative that uh, that assumes the permafrost uh, is kind of lifeless. Although there is. Um, when I was doing my fieldwork there, the uh, the government of Yakutsk, the capital city of the Sakha Republic, uh, which has a Sakhan majority government, they introduced a permafrost law, uh, which was interesting in that it um, it didn't go so far as to grant subjecthood to the permafrost, but it, it talked about the rights of the Sakhans to live on robust permafrost. And, of course, this law was kind of in name only. They know they can't really do anything Mm. to actually make the permafrost more robust. But it kind of demonstrates how uh, important permafrost and tundra is to many people still who live there. Yeah.
0: And... I want to go deeper into de-extinction as well. So in my past conversation with Tom Van Doren, we started to question projects attempting to bring back lost species in terms of what their true underlying intentions might be, whether they're more so driven by intellectual or human exceptionalism and novelty or... Really a desire to heal relationships in our landscapes and communities, given that many of the changes that led to the extinction of those species are very much still present, and many more transformations have already taken place. You've also questioned, if extinction is a slow unraveling, then does a rewilded animal begin to knit the frayed edges back together, or has the absence in between produced something else entirely, end quote." I'd be curious to have you just explore more and share more about the resurrective attempts to bring back the woolly mammoth in these terrains and what the reserve's intentions have been with such endeavors to quote rewild the landscape. And also crucially, I can't help but think about how such reserves want to study the role of these animals and these places and kind of replicate what the landscape was like in the last glacial period Yet these communities are much more complex than what we can see, as in the microbial communities of these places have drastically changed. The climactic patterns have changed. The sociocultural dynamics have changed. So it feels like a very out of context approach to study this landscape in a way that denies the relational aspects of these communities that are I think also integral to what makes them what they are, but which also have been completely remade. And maybe this is just a very critical perspective, but I'd be curious to hear what more you have to say about it.
1: Yeah, um, no, you're totally right. I agree. And interestingly, one of the permafrost scientists that I spoke to asking his opinion on Pleistocene Park, he just kind of rubbished it and said, well, they don't have the right sort of dust so for him, it was it was about the dust, um, mm. and I hadn't really thought of it in in such kind of small terms. But of course, as you say, the microbial communities, social cultural contexts, and I actually uh, I taught a course on, on on Pleistocene Park, and you know most of my students were asking questions like. Yeah, but what about the people who live there? They—they are not going to want a mammoth, you know, running into their back garden <laughs> and trampling everything. It's—it's it's just, um, it wouldn't work for that very obvious reason. And and you know, of course, that's that's very true. I mean, firstly, I want to. Um, uh, make it clear that there's a separation between Pleistocene Park and mammoth Day extinction The park is not involved directly in any mammoth Day extinction In fact, when I, you know, I was asking the director of the park, Nikita Zimov, how, you know, what he thinks about mammoth Day extinction and he just said, I want to stay out of it because there are too many people who they don't like it for religious reasons, They they see it as playing God, but if, you know, if a mammoth comes along one day, I will give it a home." So this is kind of very hands-off approach to the extinction which is of course very controversial but essentially what they're doing at the Pleistocene Park is is, it has nothing to do with you know ecosystem uh, relations or processes or you know balancing the ecosystem. It's essentially about the function of what uh, the animals can do to it so um before they got many large herbivores, I think, you know, they have bison now and quite a few cows, uh, musk oxen, so some, some really heavy beasts, and that's what they want to um stimulate this grassland and trample down the permafrost. You know, the, the Nikita and his father Sergey, they were just driving a tank over the over the tundra and um trampling and squashing down the ground that way. You know, this is certainly not a um ecological uh cuddly environmentalist project they they are trying to mitigate permafrost though almost forcefully Mm -hmm. so uh, and of course there's all sorts of kind of masculinist dominant kind of uh, scientific ideas emerging from that but they've 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 always been very clear about their intentions which is they don't care about the animals they don't care about the, the the land itself they care about addressing the climate crisis they care about saving human lives which you know, it's it's. I I was very impressed by their project and their kind of single mindedness. It's completely not my politics or the way I want to think about the world, but in a sense, you know, they they are identifying a problem and they are addressing the problem in a way that they the the, the way that they know how. With de extinction, though, I I have a lot. You know, I just I'm just completely um, critical of it because. It just seems to me it is a vanity project in a lot of senses. I just kind of look at the people who are involved in it. People like Hwang Woo-suk, who's been disgraced by his uh, Korean government for falsifying evidence uh, of other scientific work that he's done. George Church at Harvard, who, um, you know, he's taking money from Silicon Valley. um, You know, his kind of funders, if you look into uh, who they are uh, have some murky backgrounds and th- themselves it just kind of seems that this is a this is a practice which is done firstly for scientific glory i think to be the first person to de-extinct a mammoth you would be you know famous for life but also uh you know they, they are you, you can't even say that they're identifying an ecological problem like the zimovs are and correcting it because to me, the whole idea of using mammoths as as a way to address the climate crisis—you just need so many mammoths. There are so many hurdles that you would need to overcome to even, you know, have a real global impact. So I just can't see any other reason other than for kind of scientific notoriety. And then you, you're not, you know, you're getting to, into the um, dubious ethics of the thing. To produce a mammoth, you would likely need to use Indian elephants to gestate the babies. Indian elephants uh, gestate their young for two years. So you are essentially denying uh, an elephant the chance to be a mother of its of its own young. Not to mention the fact that most of the babies that would be born in this incredibly um, experimental stage of de-extinction would likely not survive. So it's incredibly unethical from that standpoint, and I just uh, can't see any good in it whatsoever. Yeah,
0: and I know it's not always easy to end up with questions that have no simple answers or the inability to see a very clear and straightforward path toward healing a lot of these things, but Also, I know we've done a lot of exploration and critiquing of dominant narratives and approaches and relations with permafrost in this conversation. And as we close off our main discussion, I would just love to leave the space open for you to share about where your inspirations might lie in regard to permafrost and any other deeper questions or cost to
1: action that you might have for our listeners. Well, I guess my um, my inspiration um, from permafrost is its discontinuity. And as much as I weave quite a depressing tale in my book, I like to think that I find hope as well. You know, there I think there are that permafrost can offer uh, inspiration to perhaps relating to the world in a more um, in a smaller and fuzzier way, I guess. Um, Yeah, um, not so much permafrost, but I guess I'm inspired by the work of Julie Cruikshank, who wrote an amazing book called Do Glaciers Listen? And she was really grappling with this this, um, how to reconcile scientific knowledge uh, with knowledges that seem to completely... um, I guess disregard an objective truth if you want to call it that I don't um but she did an ethnography of glacial scientists and the indigenous groups who were kind of living on and with the glacier and how you know these kind of breakdowns in communication would occur with the scientists who would disregard uh, some of the warnings that were um that were offered to them by the indigenous people, such as um, don't cook bacon on the glacier because the glacier won't like it. And I just found that incredibly, um, not just inspiring, but also funny. And I think I think you need to uh, have a little bit of levity because uh, I read this great article. Again, I can't um, remember the name, but I will pass it along to you about... Um, There's a tendency for a lot of white Western scholars to talk about um, taking uh, Indigenous knowledge seriously or Indigenous cosmologies seriously. And this anthropologist went to uh, do an ethnography um, of... I think Evenki uh, people in the, uh, on the Siberian tundra, and you know, he ran this kind of idea past uh, his interlocutors, and um, we just kind of laughed at him, saying, "Why should they take us so seriously? We don't take ourselves seriously." Which I just, I just thought was was lovely, just to kind of like bring some sort of uh, humor in the face of things that could actually uh, get quite dark. But yeah, I guess uh, I guess my kind of overall message is. Uh, I think we can get bogged down in the idea of, um, of preservation and saving the planet, when actually I think we should be, just be kind of imagining these new ways of relating to to both each other and the environment. Because I guess talking about saving the planet is uh, is such a colonial idea, and this idea of white supremacy, of stewardship, that unfettered capitalism will you know bring about these techno fixes. And for me, this isn't a world that I that I want to save. So I take inspiration from the permafrost as, as, as kind of degrading these ways of life and allowing for us to imagine futures that are not based on environmental destruction. Oh, my God, I'm losing my mind. It's trailing behind like a school child and I
0: What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow?
1: It's not even an environmental text, but it's called The Problem with Work by Kathy Weeks and i was really influenced by this um this idea that there is no moral imperative to work she philosophically takes all of the um kind of doctrines that have dealt with the uh, practice of work uh, and kind of dismantles them one by one and kind of comes up with the, the, the just the very idea of labor as a social and political good is is fundamentally flawed um, because we kind of, it's just kind of ingrained in us that this um, attribute of being hardworking is, is seen as overwhelmingly positive, but we are kind of reaching the point where so many of the jobs that are that exist are essentially unnecessary or could be done by robots or AI, but this concept of a society where people don't have to work is, is, is as yet unthinkable, but she kind of demonstrates that it doesn't have to be. And mm-hmm. people freed from wage labor could be more creative, they could build community bonds, they could practice art and music and 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 essentially contribute better to a society that isn't necessarily defined by money. So that was really revelatory to, to my thinking. Mm, I'm very
0: excited to check this book out. So thank you for that resource. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to
1: stay grounded? So, I don't really have any mantras, um, but uh, something that I've loved doing um, and have loved doing for a couple of years now is um, picking mushrooms. Of course, it's the season right now. There are so many mushrooms here in Norway this year, but I just find it incredibly um, meditative because I'm a very fast walker. Um, I love hiking and I'm usually, you know, dashing through the mountains. But with mushroom picking, you really have to be slow. You have to stop and notice the world around you you have to look very deeply on into the soil um, i find myself checking weather forecasts trying to predict when the mushrooms are going to come up but you can't of course because they are unpredictable you have to understand habitats uh, you have to be able to recognize different types of trees and it's also an incredibly tactile practice um, not just because you're uh, touching the mushrooms as you're picking them but also because you're eating them and there is also a sense of even if you're um, good at identifying mushrooms, there's also a, a, a sort of frisson of uh, fear when, you, when you're eating them, you know, just in case. And, and um, I don't know, I kind of find that an incredibly um, exciting practice, I guess.
0: Mm.
1: And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? <laughs> it's hard to find inspiration sometimes. Um... But I guess uh, just kind of uh, relating it to the first question that you asked me, there's been a lot of people who are refusing to do um, what the late David Graeber would call bullshit jobs. Um, <laughs> I was in uh, a small town in Utah recently, and uh, I was overhearing a, a guy at the bar who owned the bar. You know, he was uh, angrily talking about how everyone since the pandemic had quit. He had no workers. Nobody wants to work in this country anymore. And I just found it very funny. Um, but I think what the pandemic has done uh, is really caused a lot of people to reevaluate their priorities um they now value family relationships leisure time um etc over working this you know kind of uh minimum wage job that that with a boss that hates you essentially so i'm really inspired by the people who are pushing back on that of course so many of them people who are working these you know very low paid jobs uh so it's really um brave of them to be resisting this uh this kind of um way that's just been the norm for so long but yeah, that's that's very inspiring to me. Mm.
0: Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but we will have more links to Charlotte's work and references from this conversation linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And for now, Charlotte, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This has been super thought-provoking and we're so grateful for you being here with us today. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Well, I guess this, the message that I've been... Um, banging on about all podcast practice discontinuity if it's not too self-indulgent leave yourself open to new experiences relations stories and futures there is never a single truth or way of doing something and we just need to find these alternative ways of living so thank you so much
0: Thank you for tuning in and thank you so much if you've already come over to support our work at greendreamer.com slash support. You can also really help us out by purchasing our Green Dreamer planners at greendreamer.com slash shop through submitting five-star reviews in the podcast app or through sharing your favorite conversations with your loved ones. Green Dreamer's audio engineer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher and editor is Anissa seema Holly, and I'm your host and producer, Kamea Shane. Take care for now and we'll catch you soon in the next episode.